We are now back to our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter three. The narrative is as follows. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The temple. The temple in Jerusalem. Oh, you remember David wanted to build that temple. He gathered all the material King David did in about 1000 BC. He hired the contractors. He laid out the plans. He purchased the, the site. He did everything he could do, do except build the temple. That was left to his son, Solomon, peace, the prince of peace. And young King Solomon built the temple in splendor and glory. The temple lasted for a few centuries. And all of the worship rituals that took place there on a daily basis and all of the festivals of the moons, the months, and all the festivals of the years and then it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And God's people were taken into exile. But then they returned. And when they did, they rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel, the prince of the people, the leader of the people. They built that temple and they did as good as they could do. They did the best they could do, but they didn't touch the splendor of Solomon's temple. Whereas Solomon's temple had things overlaid with gold. All of that gold had been plundered in the Babylonian captivity and all they had to replace it with was brass which they would polish daily and shine to try to give it the veneer that it needed to look like the gold. Centuries pass again. They continue in the worship of that temple and when King Herod 
finally comes to the throne during the days of the Caesars, he begins to remodel the temple, to build it, to garnish it, to embellish it, and certainly to enlarge it, adding to it massive courts around there, adding to it residences for the priest, adding to it the throne room and the meeting room of the Sanhedrin, having the palace of the high priest there, and adding more to it than that. They even built a huge castle right next to it with a tower so that the Romans could live there and occupy there. And through that tower, the Tower of Antonio, named after the August Caesar, they could look down upon the proceedings and see if there was any mischief going on in that temple. This was the temple that Jesus had come to as a boy of 12. This is the temple that Jesus had been to many times with his disciples in teaching them. It was the place where Jesus had had confrontations with the, the Herodian party and the Sadducees and others that ruled there in that area. This was the temple Jesus had cleansed. This was the temple that the prophet gave the promise to Zerubbabel that the, the glory of the latter temple, that is Zerubbabel's temple, enlarged and enhanced by Herod, would have a greater glory than Solomon's temple. And even though the old men wept because they remembered in their childhood the glory of Solomon's temple and they saw Zerubbabel's temple didn't have this glory anymore, yet the glory of God came to Zerubbabel's temple. The glory of God, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. Very significant in the life of ancient Israel were the temple and all of its ceremony, and just as important to Christ and the apostles and the early church was the temple. Sometimes we miss that because we, we've come to see that within 25 years, a quarter of a century after these events, as the gospel goes throughout the Roman world, riding on the Roman roads and going to the provincial capitals and the big urban centers of the Roman Empire, and then moving south into Africa and east into Persia and north into Gaul, the gospel became an extremely powerful voice of salvation to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles had come to Christ, had come to the Jewish Messiah, had come to the Lord in faith, believing. And when we enter the beginning of the second century, just beyond the pages of the New Testament authorship, we begin to see that the church is becoming a Gentile outfit. And we forget that in that first generation, it was thoroughly Jewish, thoroughly Jewish. Christ and the apostles did not think of themselves as having abandoned the faith of Abraham or the law of Moses or the temple of Solomon, but they had embraced it in its fullness because they had come to see who the real priest 
is and who the real lamb of sacrifice is and who the real temple body is in Christ and in His body in the church. They were beginning to understand the true fulfillment of all of these things. But in this early day, they were very much attuned to and grounded in the rituals and the liturgy of the temple. And that's what we have here. We have an event that occurred on a day when Peter and John, two of the premier disciples of the Lord, were going up to the temple as they customarily would do there in Jerusalem. And it was about three o'clock in the afternoon and it was time for the services there, especially the hour of prayer. And they go into the temple and as they're on their way into the temple, they see a party of people, a small party of people, maybe three or four, and they are bringing a man with them. They're hauling a man in so that they might locate him at a particular place by a gate to where he can set up his operation of begging. They're bringing in a beggar. They're bringing in a destitute man. They're bringing in a helpless man. Oh, don't you remember in Jesus' ministry when they brought a lame man to Jesus? And they had him at the four corners of the pallet. And they had to open the roof to let him down in there. Do you remember how many times Jesus healed the lame? Do you remember Jesus got into trouble in this very temple with these very leaders of Israel when he healed a lame man on the Sabbath day? And Peter saw that scene of these people. This, as the scripture says here, a lame man from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. He saw that scene of four people carrying a lame man. And he was fixated on it. He looked at it. He recognized it for what it was. And I'm sure the fishermen had a chill bump or two come over him when he realized that God the Spirit was now moving upon him to perform a miracle. Another one of those many signs and wonders that the apostles had been doing in the presence of the people here in these early days of the church. This was the theater, this was the arena of a miracle, of a wonder-working event. And so Peter was fixed on it. And he asked this person, I don't want to spend much time because I think we're all there theologically, but those who are defective from birth have a significant symbolism in Scripture. They're people who are symbolic of the real, truly helpless. The man who was blind from birth had never known sight until the Lord gave him his sight that day. And this man who had been crippled from birth, congenital lameness, never knew what it was like to stand 
upon his own two feet, much less walk or run or balance himself or carry himself. He never knew what it's like to be able to move from here to here on his feet. He had to drag and crawl. What a picture of us in our sinfulness and in our helplessness. In sin we're conceived. We are born morally crippled, unable to get up and to walk in the paths of righteousness at all. So this man comes and it's interesting, it says he was laid at the gate, beautiful. Ron, I thought you just told us the whole temple was beautiful. Well, it was. But this particular gate was called the gate beautiful because on the eastern side, the eastern gate, it had been not only uh, uh, laid over with, with gold and silver, but they had done a lot of ornamental work. They had a lot of sculpturing and a lot of carving and engraving that had been done to it so that it was exceptionally beautiful because this was the single access from the court of the Gentiles into the inner courts going toward the temple. This was the place where everybody came through. This was the one gate that everybody had to come through. That's why it was a good place to put the beggar. He would get all the traffic coming through. He would be at the right place. And Peter looks at him and glances up at the silver and gold that garnished everything in his sight. And he said, silver and gold, have I none? <laughs> That's really all the beggar wanted was silver and gold. He didn't want a sermon. He didn't want any kind of social interaction beyond just a brief encounter that would give him what he needed. I think that's the way a lot of us come to the Lord. We don't want the theology. We don't want the hard doctrine. We don't want the disciplined life. We don't want the narrow road. We don't want the straight gate. We just want what we need for the moment. And our prayers often and our pleas often to the Lord sound like that, don't they? Lord, just get me through this immediate crisis. Help me when I'm down, when I can't get up on my own. I need your help. If I'm on my own, I'm okay, Lord. Thank you very much. But if I'm down, I need you. It's interesting that when Peter reaches out his hand, his hand is empty. There's no silver. There's no gold. He has nothing but an empty hand. But what he has in his fingertips are the power of Almighty God to save. And that is exactly what he delivers. After this particular event, Peter preaches a wonderful gospel message. We'll be looking at it, I trust, in the near future. No preaching of the gospel at this point. Deed. Word and deed go together in Scripture over and over and over. In this instance, deed, the act, the miracle, the wonder working of God, the raising up, happened before the word was delivered. That's kind of the way it is in our salvation. 
The Lord comes to us in our helplessness. He comes to us in our weakness. He comes to us in our disability and he raises us. And that's exactly what Peter did. Peter didn't make the man leap. <laughs> Peter didn't make the man walk. Peter didn't even make the man praise the Lord. But Peter did lift him up. Lift him up. And once lifted, it's interesting how it's kind of described here. One of the commentators noted that Luke, a physician, sort of briefly outlined the rehabilitation process. <laughs> you know, the strength first comes in the foot, the feeling of the weight of the body on the foot, getting the foundation, and then the strength coming to the ankles, and then the legs, and the capacity to first stand, and then to take that first step. And then to follow it with another step. And then to follow it with a, a, a more rapid step. And then to follow it with a leap. And this is exactly the way it progressed. <laughs> when this man was healed, Peter took him up by the right hand saying, rise up and walk. And he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Standing, walking, Leaping. Everything you can expect out of feet and legs. <laughs> he was doing it all. A complete healing. A total healing. And he began praising the Lord. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. These people knew his story. These people knew who he was. These regular observant Jews coming to that temple frequently, if not daily, and at least as often as they could when they were in Jerusalem, they knew this man. This man had been there a while. They had seen this beggar. They knew his story. And I'm here to tell someone this morning that people that know your story are the ones that are going to praise the Lord and be astonished when they know your story, when they know how far down you were, how lost you were, how helpless you were, how much of a beggar, how destitute you were spiritually, if not morally, financially, physically, and all the rest. And they know what God has done for you. The people that know your story are the people that you can witness to the best. They know the authenticity of what you were like and now what you're like. They can see the difference. They can know that you've been with Jesus and that you've been healed by His power. You've been healed physically, emotionally. That the bitterness and the hatred and, the, and all of the things that have vexed your soul and tortured you mentally and emotionally have now all been lifted, moved aside. The light of the glorious gospel is shown in your life and you now radiate its truth. And you are a walking, talking testimony of the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the love, the tenderness of God our Savior.